0: This is Guilty Conscience, casual discussions on transfer pricing, tax treaties, and related topics. A podcast from Scadden that invites thought leaders and industry experts to discuss pressing transfer pricing issues, international tax reform efforts, and tax administration trends. We also dig into the innovative approaches companies are using to navigate the international tax environment and address the obligation everyone loves to hate. Now your hosts Scadden Partners David Farhat and Nate Carden. Hey
1: everybody, this is Nate Carden, David Farhat, Iman Kyler, Stefan Victor, and once again you're here at Guilty Conscience. Like an old band, a lot of times we're trying to do new, narrow, avant-garde stuff, but sometimes the crowd demands the greatest hits. So today we're gonna do the hits and we're gonna do legislation, regulation, and the pillars we're joined today by a couple of our colleagues, Paul Osterheis and Jose Amon, both from our D.C. office. Let them introduce themselves, and then we'll jump into uh, everyone's favorite topic,
2: new regulation. Paul? Thanks, Nate. I thought you were referring to old hits because I'm an old man, but that's okay. <laughs> I... Paul Osterheis. I'm of counsel at Skadden. I've been with Skadden since 1989 and have done a lot of international tax over the years. These days, I do a lot of tax policy. Josefa, do you want to introduce yourself?
3: Yeah. Hi, I'm Josefa Munn. I'm in my eighth year as an associate at Skadden and work on operational tax planning, including transfer pricings.
1: So, the saga around Build Back Better has made Joe Manchin the most famous United States senator in the world. It doesn't look like we're going to see anything, at least in the near future. One of the things that's making a lot of us wonder about is what happens if that doesn't pass, uh, both on the regulatory front and on the pillars front? And Paul, I wonder if you can kick us off.
2: So let's start out with regulations. As you know, the BBB proposes a Section 163N that limits interest deductions basically in proportion to worldwide EBITDA, or in the Senate bill, worldwide assets if you elect it. But if BBB is not enacted, there's a fair amount that we suspect this Treasury Department will want to consider with respect to the treatment of interest expense Particularly for U.S. multinationals, some of the members of the Treasury Department have been quite critical of things that were done during the uh, Trump administration. And the green book that Treasury proposed back in uh, the spring of this year, of last year, included a proposal to disallow interest deductions in a novel application of Section 265, that they include that as a legislative proposal, but they did say no inference should be drawn from that proposal as to whether, as an administrative matter, they could do it by regulations. And my impression is that they will give some significant consideration to doing a disallowance by regulations. Now, what would that mean the idea, and a lot of this comes from an article that Steve Shea uh, wrote that was in Tax Notes uh, last fall, if I remember right, is that if you have interest expense that is not allocated for foreign tax credit purposes because of the Section 250 deduction or because of Section Allocated to income that is otherwise sheltered by the 250 deduction or the 245 cap A deduction, You should have that interest expense disallowed rather than treated as it is today under our Section 861-8 regulations. And the theory is that the 250 deduction is the equivalent of a partial exemption and the 245 cap A deduction is the equivalent of a partial objection exemption. Now, I disagree with that with respect to the 250 deduction because it's limited to taxable income. And so it's not automatically an amount of gross income that is exempt from tax by means of the deduction. With and respect Paul, if to- And Paul, yeah, sure. if I can interrupt- sure.
4: If I could interrupt and ask, if I'm in-house right now and I'm listening to this, what should have me worried? What should I be kind of thinking about with, with the proposal of these new rules?
2: It's simply that a certain amount of your interest expense that today it doesn't adversely affect you. You're, you're getting a full mm-hmm. deduction and it's not hurting you from a foreign tax credit point of view would be disallowed. And it's more the portion that is under our 861 principles today attributable to the exempt assets that you have that are exempt by reason of the 250 deduction. You really have to get into the weeds, David, of how you allocate interest under the 861-20 reg to and, and the 861 interest allocation regs, a, a dash nine to dash 13, but how you allocate interest to different categories of CFC stock. And a portion of it under this regime would be presumably would be allocated to assets that are now treated as exempt and then disallowed. So that could be a significant proposal.
4: So given... We talk here a lot about kind of transfer pricing and international tax, and it sounds as though we could run into a significant amount of double tax with this. I have interest income in one jurisdiction, and I'm not getting a deduction here in the US.
2: Sure, yeah, and of course it applies to third-party interest, not to just intercompany interest. And in fact, most of it might well be uh, third-party interest. It would just flat out be disallowing a deduction so it increases your effective tax rate. Now they they may take an alternative approach which is just to to reverse the treatment of exempt assets that the Trump administration Treasury Department proposed the assets that are treated as exempt by reason of the 250 deduction and say no we're going to allocate interest to those assets because technically when Congress adopted the 2017 act and the 250 deduction they didn't identify that deduction as being something to which you did not allocate interest, unlike, say, the Section 243 deduction. So there's a more of a technical basis to just, just change the assets that interest is allocated to, which has the effect of disallowing interest expense if you're in an excess credit position in your guilty basket. And a lot of folks are these days, and of course, three years from now, a lot of folks will be if foreign countries are raising their rates, uh, like Ireland raising their rate from 125 to 15%, and Puerto Rico potentially raising their rate. So that could be a, a pretty effective disallowance mechanism as well. And so that'll put us
1: in a world where we're going to have country by country plus the baskets, so 700 baskets to which we have to allocate some interest expense?
2: Well, that's true. If BBB is not enacted, then we still have the overall guilty basket, right? And some companies are in an excess credit position in that basket today, but a lot of companies that are not in an excess credit position today are assuming they're going to be in an excess credit position in a few years if foreign countries react to Pillar 2 by increasing their tax rates, which wouldn't be surprising. So that's one thing that Treasury can do that would be pretty significant and not favorable to taxpayers, obviously. A second thing, we hear rumors from Treasury that they're thinking about changing the -the check-the-box regulations. And how serious that is, we don't know. But the -the check-the-box regime is a regulatory regime. There's a widely held view, David Hemmel has has written about it, that you could revoke check-the-box if you wanted to, or you could limit its application. And if they did that, that could substantially limit everybody's ability, for example, to reduce foreign tax in ways that check-the-box helps you do and reduce U.S. tax in some circumstances as well. So we could worry about that coming down the pipe if uh, BBB is enacted.
1: I'm trying to, I guess, understand what would motivate that, right? Because if I also then look Mm -hmm. at the BBB proposals and subpart F, the subpart F reform proposals, right, the the direction of travel in the subpart F reform proposals is, broadly speaking, to say, foreign to foreign, we don't care. We're not going to worry about it for subpart F sales. We're not going to worry about it for subpart F services. Certainly, the direction of travel in the foreign tax credit regulations is we don't want to give you credits. So given that, as you say, check the box is principally, I think, a non-U.S. tax issue for a lot of U.S. multinationals, not exclusively, but often, what's motivating Treasury to think about getting into the Wayback Machine and taking us back 25 years?
2: I can't tell you because I haven't talked to them about it. I'm getting this information indirectly. But my guess given the criticisms that, that some of the academics have had about check-the-box, first of all, that will give you low tax income that can then keep you from getting too far into an excess credit position under guilty. So it, in effect, operates through cross-crediting, right, to allow you, and, and that, in turn, if you can reduce your foreign tax without increasing your U.S. tax because you're otherwise in an excess credit position with cross-crediting, That in turn gives you an incentive to move income at least and maybe economic activity outside the United States because on the margin you're not paying any tax beyond the local tax rate. Let's face it, check the box was something that if a whole range of tax policy people were today thinking fresh about would not end up being what it is because it's very much a taxpayer planning tool to reduce not just foreign tax, but in the end to reduce U.S. tax through subpart F and and that would otherwise be imposed under subpart F and or guilty. And so it's not surprising to me that there's some interest in this Treasury Department if they have the time and the resources to reconsider it.
3: Do you have any view from a policy standpoint whether these rules should actually be limited or completely revoked do you have a view either way
2: well depends on whether I'm representing clients or (laughs) or 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 teaching my class when I teach my class which we actually talked about this yesterday in my class I talk about how we wouldn't enact check the box as it is today if we were doing this fresh one of the things I learned when I was on the joint committee staff in my young lawyer days Is that giving taxpayers an election is a dangerous thing because they will always choose the election that minimizes their tax and therefore minimizes governmental revenue and so you only want to give elections where there's a good governmental reason to give elections and check the box is the ultimate election that gives taxpayers enormous flexibility I am confident that nobody who thought about Check the Box back in 1995, 96, 97 fully contemplated or appreciated the extent to which that electivity was going to give a tool to tax planners. And it's not just Check the Box itself. It's treating transactions between a single owner and a transparent entity as disregarded. It's the disregarded entity treatment that leads to disregarded transaction treatment that gives the potential for arbitrage, because foreign governments recognize transactions, we don't, and it's elective. What more could you want for a tool to enhance tax planning? And as Nate says, most of it is foreign to foreign, not U.S. to foreign, but there's a fair amount that involves the U.S. and a fair amount that involves inbound, not just outbound, not just U.S. multinationals, but foreigners doing business in the United States. In my class, I teach that if I'm, let's say, a Brazilian company and I buy inventory in the U.S. and sell it in Brazil, if I check the box on the Brazil entity, I don't pay any tax in the U.S. But if I don't check the box on the Brazilian entity, I do pay tax in the U.S. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's what the optionality permits. So the final thing and that is regulatory in nature that comes into play in all of this is the new foreign tax credit regs. The regulations have been like a tsunami coming through the international tax community since they became final. They substantially limit the foreign tax credit, as I think most listeners on the podcast appreciate, and would have a real impact not just on existing taxes in Countries that don't necessarily follow our rules as precisely as the regulations would seek them to, but would also apply to many of the things that could go on in OECD Pillar One and Pillar Two that we will be talking about as we go through this podcast. Treasury is probably going to reconsider some of these rules, at least as they apply to specific taxes, and they may have uh, one or more notices or other. Revenue rulings are something that clarifies the treatment of taxes in different jurisdictions, but there's clearly a mismatch between these regulations and what's happening elsewhere in the world. That's going to be a continuing problem, and we'll see whether Treasury, in effect, wants to try to use these regulations as leverage to get Congress to change some of our rules and conform more to some of the international rules. Or whether they back down on some of the provisions in the existing regs. I'm not confident they'll do the latter.
3: If Build Back Better doesn't happen, is there, I guess, a political will or like some sort of incentive? Like, what is the likelihood of these regulations like coming into play given the politics of now and whether there's going to be a push? Like, is there some sort of motivation to enact some or all these sorts of regulations?
2: I think it's a fair assumption that if legislation is not enacted this year, it's probably not going to be enacted in 23 and 24 because we may well have a divided congress and as we saw in the Obama administration and the last 2 years of the Trump administration enacting major tax legislation with a divided congress is a very difficult thing and unlikely to happen other than extender type uh, type bills, right? So, it seems to me Like the Treasury Department did during the later Obama years when they came up with the 385 regs and the 7874 regs and things like that uh, unilaterally, that this Treasury Department would probably be pretty active in adopting some of these regulations. One other one that I should have mentioned but didn't is the high tax exception to the subpart F and uh, guilty regulations. Some of the folks in the Treasury Department have been on record as criticizing that, that particular aspect of the Trump regulations, that's an easy thing to reverse. And so it wouldn't surprise me to see if they did that. Now, how many taxpayers benefit from it today is an open issue because of restrictions that the Trump administration put on those regulations. But clearly companies that have losses in the U.S. benefit from making the high tax exception election and also a lot of financial institutions, for example, benefit from it. Both of those are actually very sympathetic cases. If you have losses in the U.S., having to use those losses against your guilty income is really unfortunate from a broader tax policy point of view. And so if they get rid of the high tax exception, they will be limiting that in sympathetic circumstances, But Like I say, there are some senior people at Treasury who've been on record saying that that was not an appropriate tax policy, so they may well get rid of it.
1: Yeah, I promised myself I'd I'd sit on my hands during the foreign tax credit reg discussion and not throw things at the screen and start flailing the microphone around. But I just got to ask, so let's play this out. Build Back Better doesn't pass, right? Then the guilty regime potentially is not a conforming regime. That means that either somebody else's income inclusion under Pillar 2 comes into play or under tax payment rule comes into play. And so you have additional foreign taxes in these countries as a result of Pillar 2. And then the Treasury Department goes forward with regs that say these taxes are not credible. So is Treasury really going to say, we created this monster We got behind pillar two. We were the first ones to adopt global minimum tax. Nobody else is doing it. But then after we create the monster, we're going to have regulations that tell us that the taxes associated with that are not creditable. That feels nervy to me.
3: It seems a little bit unlikely to me, just based on the preamble language of the foreign tax credit regs, just because it sounds like, at least from the preamble and anybody that has learned anything contrary to that, definitely let me know. But it looks like they're focused on the right now, what's going on with the DSTs and like the immediate nature of some of these non-traditional nexus-based taxes. But they left an opening that if there's new laws or like new regimes in place, that we might revisit our rules and maybe tweak them. But whether that's actually going to happen, I'm not sure.
2: Well, and the other thing, though, Nate, Within Pillar 2, you have to divide the world between UTPR and IIR, right? Because the new regs, IIR is a CFC regime, right? Other countries, subpart F type regimes. Yeah. And that's creditable under, uh, but the UTPR is not creditable. You still got to pass the arm's length standard rule. It's a
1: residence tax. I don't know how you think about that.
2: Let's put it this way. They put a specific rule in the realization requirements right. that a deemed dividend it meets the realization standard. So I don't know why taxing deemed dividends wouldn't meet the arms length standard as well. I mean, they may need to clarify that, but I think the taxes that are So if you have a Dutch holding company, you're a yes. US multinational, you have a Dutch holding company and the Dutch adopt an IIR regime, then you should be okay. But if you have a flat structure and don't have a a foreign company that has an IIR in your structure, then you could have the under-tax payment rule applying. And that's not a deemed dividend. That's a sideways apportionment of income, or at least it can be. And so I don't see how you get a credit for that. But I do think if it's a vertical structure with a country that has a qualified IIR regime in the top tier holding company, you may well be OK. It would be good for them to clarify that. though.
1: So basically, the Treasury Department's policy is we'd like to subsidize the people of the Netherlands.
2: Dutch people are great people.
1: I get it. But why exactly we're doing that and saying, hey, you know, choose your hold code jurisdiction wisely is is a mystery to me. But I digress.
2: Yeah. And what Treasury would say is, well, then you should be pushing for BBB because that would get around it because we would have a qualifying IIR ourselves. And therefore that would trump the Dutch IIR and we would get the revenue, not them, but because BBB is not being enacted, right? That would be the great department.
1: I don't think companies vote in the Senate. <laughs> Somebody go sure. knock on, we're, we're back to Joe. But in any case, yeah. right while all this is going on, we also have the pillars. My favorite topic because if I was ever going to design something architecturally, the the steadiest way to have something stand up is to put it on two pillars that will never fall over. Josefa, what's the first <laughs> <love> pillar?
3: <laughs> yeah, so the first pillar here, what we're just to give everyone quick background, as most people are probably somewhat familiar with it, is. There's a new taxing right on profits related to market jurisdictions. And the proposal to kind of like extract these taxes is to put in scope companies making 200 billion euros or more and taxing them above their 10 percent margin if, if they are able to make that much. So you have this group of companies, a large portion, as you might imagine, are going to be United States companies, probably around like 50 or 60 of the of the 100 companies that that fall into scope here. So we can imagine a scenario where Pillar 1 is enacted, you have an allocation to market jurisdictions, kind of like on a destination-based regime, and no corresponding United States law. Or no buy in by the United States, either through the current administration or maybe like a future administration, depending on how long Pillar One takes to actually be enacted, that you have a mismatch where you have the rest of the world signed up onto Pillar One and then the United States kind of just doing its own thing. In this sort of situation, there's multiple double tax problems for United States companies and, and their foreign based subsidiaries. So if we're looking at transactions with United States residents and between them and either third parties abroad or or related parties abroad, in the first instance, treaty networked jurisdictions, you're going to have a conflict there because under Pillar 1, Pillar 1 is not an arm's length based, you know, the amount A that they talk about, which is the market jurisdiction allocation. That's not an arm's length amount. That's you know something else, right? Outside of the arm's length standard. And United States treaties have a particular provision in them where the related parties between each other have to be operating in the same sense as independent enterprises would. So in that situation, you'd think that treaties are going to override the ability for there to be. Pillar 1 related adjustments between just those two, the United States and a a treaty partner. But it also kind of like raises an interesting point because you have all these, much of the OECD is treaty network with the United States. So if you're looking at who is going to ultimately pay this amount A, many times in, in whatever iteration you might look at the United States as being a source of that there's treaty countries and then there's conflicts between the treaties that all these OECD countries might have with the United States and the pillar one regime itself. So that, that I think is like kind of an interesting point of like, what are these countries going to do? Like with that treaty out there, like the United States treaty, that's presumably not going to be rescinded.
4: So let's unpack that a little bit. So if I have like the regular income tax, if I have a treaty relationship I've done my transfer pricing. I have an adjustment in country A. If I have a treaty with the U.S., I can go to MAP to figure out exactly, okay, can I get this a correlative adjustment in the U.S. or have the competent authorities work it out and pull that amount back. What happens here with this amount A? You mentioned there could be um, double tax. So If I have amount A, looking at the rules, they're very convoluted. So country A, B, and C could kind of take a whack at the same dollar. How does that work under the treaty? Do I still have my same map rights? Do I go to the table and, and, and discuss it that way? Is transfer pricing even relevant here? What happens there? Am
1: I allowed to say it works badly? No.
2: I, go ahead.
4: Well, I, I, I think that's assumed. <laughs> go
2: ahead. <laughs> but David, Hussein's point is that yeah. let's say it's an export from the U.S. to the UK, and the UK is asserting an amount A on that export. The treaty would say, no, you can't do that because the related article says you use arm's length pricing and amount A is not determined under arm's length pricing. So then you would think Mm -hmm. a map discussion would say UK has to back off. Now, the UK is one of those jurisdictions that can override treaties with legislation. Yeah later in time and they intentionally do it, in which case they would say, well, tough bounce, we are overriding the treaty. But most countries don't have provisions that'll, in most countries, treaties cannot be overridden by legislation. And so in those countries, you would think they would still be, they wouldn't be able to impose an amount A if it's inconsistent with the Arms Lake Standard.
1: Let me play devil's advocate here, because we also see a number of countries that impose a number of taxes that they say are outside the scope of their covered taxes under the treaty. So why can't they just say, look, this is an additional surtax that we put on resident companies. It's not one of the covered taxes under the treaty. I mean, I don't think we're going to send the Navy. So what are we going to do if they follow the diverted profits tax approach? and just say, we have an extra book tax.
4: And you can see how that snowballs
2: with with the Pillar 1. That's a very good question. I I think we either have to threaten to revoke the treaty because they're clearly misinterpreting the treaty because it is a tax on income, or at least it's kind of ironic, isn't it? We would be saying it's not a creditable tax, but it's still a covered tax under the treaty. Maybe, Maybe the foreign tax credit regs actually help the foreign government say it's not a covered tax because yeah, yep, because it has to conform in order to be a cover. That's an interesting argument. Exactly right, Paul.
4: Who's ever, please go ahead now.
3: Let's say it was out of out of scope of the treaty for whatever reason. You're not going to get credit under the current rules for that tax being a non arms length amount.
2: And certainly with non treaty countries. You've got a real problem. You're you're not going to have the foreign source income with export transactions in all likelihood, much less have a creditable tax.
4: So to take this a level up, and Nate, this is a conversation we've been having. It's what's the goal here? It looks like we have a lot of rules, some from, you know, some on the domestic side, some coming out of OECD. You look at all the unilateral measures. We have all these rules that don't link together, don't have a shared purpose that will create absolute amount of havoc. As a tax person that's been doing this for a little while, I think the general rule has always been, I don't necessarily have to agree with the rule, I need to know it. I need to have some certainty as to what's happening to be able to operate, whether it's to advise my clients or to do business. And I know I'm kind of asking you to crystal ball a little bit here, Paul and Josefa as well. How do you see all of this kind of shaking out? Because you can't, we can't live in a world where you have all this uncertainty. And you're even saying, well, the treaty process may not even help.
1: And Paul, maybe before you start that, I think one of the things that I get very frustrated by, and you've known for a long time that I get very frustrated by, is what's the policy North Star here that informs yeah. the crystal ball? Because it almost feels like at this point... Pillar 1's being done for the sake of doing Pillar 1, as opposed to trying to get to an end game?
2: Yeah, those are all very good questions. I think the first question is, what motivated the train to start going, if I can use that metaphor? Maybe that's not the best metaphor, but the snowball to start going, how about that? And to my mind, what motivated it is that the combination of remote transactions in part through the internet, right? We used to order remote transactions through catalogs and on the telephone, but that was a small part of our commerce. Now we're, we're ordering a lot of things over the internet that, you know, maybe in the U.S. they're mostly U.S. websites, but if you're in Portugal or Estonia, there's a lot of stuff that's coming from outside your country that's done over the internet, and you're not getting any revenue out of it because there are no boots on the ground. The second thing, and this is uh, U.S. multinationals in a lot of countries, is limited risk distribution, right? The centralization of functions, you now have global marketing rather than separate marketing teams in France, in Germany, in Spain, and in Portugal. And so you have all of them in one country, maybe it's Switzerland, for example. Means that the market jurisdictions are either getting no revenue because of remote transactions or getting not very much revenue compared to what they got 20 years ago. So that's one element I think that is an underlying motivation. The other element is just that because we're rewarding income where economic activity is taking place, we've seen a migration of economic activity to tax favored jurisdictions. And that's just a reality. And it's a reality that U.S. companies and common law and companies that are in systems like the U.K. systems tend to be the the countries whose companies do it the most. And so other countries are kind of saying, wait a minute, why should there be so much income in Ireland? Why should there be so much income in Switzerland or Singapore or Puerto Rico, for that matter? And when you shouldn't be in some place that's less movable and that is the market. So you have those Kind of different things coming together to my mind to say more income should be allocated to the market. And that's what Pillar One is all about with its amount A. Now, once they got into it, particularly because it's not 10 people sitting in the room, it's 120 plus countries doing a Zoom call, you end up with both the business community and the government saying, well, if we do that through arm's length pricing mechanisms, But changing the ground rules for arm's length pricing and changing the ground rules for permanent establishment, we've got a facts and circumstances test in every case, and that's too hard. We can't do that. So we need mechanical rules that don't necessarily come up with the right answer. But if everybody agrees to it, at least the income isn't being double taxed. And that's the direction that amount A has become. It's become more like formulary apportionment, to my mind and obviously if because it's not arm's length pricing there's going to be a big difference between the countries that adopt it and the countries that don't it's going to be hard enough to get the formula working right in the countries that adopt it in terms of who gets what of the amount and not having overlapping claims on it but if you have some countries adopting it and some countries don't you have a mess and to my mind the question is okay after that's out there for five years. Are people just going to throw up their hands and give up, or are they going to say, no, we need to keep working on this so that we eliminate some of the frictions that we have in the system? And and very hard to know how that's going to come out. But that's, that's my perspective on what motivated it and how we got to where we got.
1: I have a question. Might businesses affected by Pillar 1 be incentivized to potentially restructure?
2: Yes particularly to qualify for the marketing and distribution safe harbor, because that would get you out of the issue of of needing to figure out who's going to give up taxing jurisdiction. You decide who's going to give up taxing jurisdiction if you change your transfer pricing to qualify for the marketing and distribution safe harbor, rather having it be decided by some sort of proportionality. And actually, it's interesting. This goes back to the electivity point. Because that safe harbor is elective, you can choose whether to let the amount A happen or to qualify for the safe harbor. And let's face it, if the amount A has to be surrendered in part from high-tax jurisdictions, and if you qualify for the marketing and distribution safe harbor, It the surrender is effectively from low tax distributions. You might prefer the amount A, even though there's some double tax because you're getting a surrender in high tax jurisdiction. So there will be quite a bit of planning around around all of that, I would assume. And David, that would be in your sweet spot.
3: Yeah, and, and I think also as part of that, or just to flush that out a little bit more, is like you would have more companies looking into actually establishing presences in local countries and then getting their transfer pricing run through those entities.
2: Right.
4: Yeah, that was a question I wanted to ask a little bit. And I know as a transfer pricing guy, sounding like you're coming out in favor of formulary apportionment is a a crime punishable by very, very harsh things. But wouldn't some sort of formula kind of help here? to kind of Hasepa's point, if it's aligned with your transfer pricing. So if you're doing like a profit split or something along those lines and you have that kind of marketing intangible that you yeah. allocate to those market jurisdictions and you split right. it that way, doesn't that help with the double tax problem and kind of deal with the amount A issue as opposed to coming yeah. up with this side regime that seems ridiculously complex?
2: Well, you're preaching the choir on that, David, because I, I advocated in the early stages of this process that they just revise transfer pricing rather than come up with a formula. But I was hooted out of the hall by both the business community and the tax, the governmental representatives, because they said, no, that's going to be too complicated. You can't have, back in the days when they were going to apply this to uh, consumer facing, they said, you can't have profit split be applied in every circumstance because that's impossible. (laughs) And it's a good point. It's a good point. I mean, you know how difficult profit splits can be. And so they said, we need to simplify it by having it be a formula. Now they've got a formula that because it's simple and is one size fits all, doesn't fit with transfer pricing. Because by definition, you can't have a formula fit with transfer pricing. And to my mind, there's a real battle in whether they keep the marketing and distribution safe harbor, because that is the Mm -hmm. last vestige in this area of Transfer pricing if they give that up for example Then it seems to me we're on a path to do a lot more formulary apportionment down the road to try to make this whole Work and and we're we're really at a crossroads here between transfer pricing and formulary apportionment
4: Well, I think you should go back and talk to those folks again because there's an old saying that uh, a dying man will pray for high fever I think in this situation, given what we've seen recently, you might be the high fever that they're more than willing to accept. Now.
1: And you already brought governments and the business community together, which nobody else has been able to do. So good work. <laughs> That's, right. That's right. I have a question that folks, I think, are going to be very interested in as this thing moves forward, if it moves forward. So if you look at the most recent consultation doc, right, there's a a reference to, and this is a defined, capitalized term, the Tax Certainty Panel. Who are these people and what are they going to do? I
2: have no idea, but I'd like to be on it. (laughs) I could retire. (laughs) Take us with you, Paul. Take us with you. They better be nicer to the governments and the
1: business community then.
2: (laughs) Right. Yeah. we, We long thought that for us, lawyers who were getting close to retirement that being arbitrators in transfer pricing arbitrations was going to be a booming business that hasn't happened but maybe maybe this will be an alternative for us
3: and and also we we didn't get into the time scale of this but pillar 1 the amount a portion that we've been talking about the plan is for that to be in somewhat final form by next year it is a distinct possibility that we do have this gap between U.S. acceptance and the rest of the world going along with this. But I mean, it, is it a distinct possibility of it actually completing by next year? That's, that's actually the more important question. What do you think will be the impact if Pillar 1 and Pillar 2 are um, enacted by other countries and we are not aligned? The U.S. doesn't move forward and enacts those rules?
2: we'll be working a lot longer hours. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and you're going to be praying that, that they adopt the marketing and distribution safe harbor and you can hire hire David and Nate to restructure your transfer pricing to avoid <laughs> what otherwise would be a tax. <laughs> That's really what the situation's going to be. Now, should we move to pillar 2? Yes, please. Pillar 2 is everybody adopting what they call an IIR uh, regime that is based on financial statements, but a, minim, a country by country minimum tax at a 15% rate. And one of the things that's going to be very interesting if we don't do it and other countries do, will that lead some lower tax countries, including Ireland, to raise their rate? Now, Ireland's probably going to have to anyway because they're part of the EU and the EU is going to adopt Pillar 2 so they probably will have to. But the first order fact, to my mind with with respect to U.S. multinationals is that foreign countries that have low rates today will be raising those rates. Maybe the Hungarian rate will go up to 15%, uh, the Irish rate will go up to 15%. There's certainly a lot of talk about Puerto Rico restructuring their grants to have a rate of 15% down there and so that will have an impact on the planning of US companies even if we don't adopt our own version of pillar 2 that adopts a per country foreign tax credit limitation so i would say that's the first order effect the second order effect is what we were talking about earlier with with nay which is do you get a credit for some of these taxes in the various foreign countries that are imposed under their IIR or under their under-tax payment rule, if you have CFCs that are still paying a low rate of tax, let's say Singapore doesn't raise its rates or Hong Kong doesn't raise its rates and you have some income there, won't other countries be trying to grab it? But the biggest one is the fact that there are a lot of companies that on their U.S. income pay less than 15%. And there was a letter that just went in from the Senate finance Republicans to the Treasury asking the Secretary to explain how we are getting ourselves into this conundrum that there are credits and and a favorable rate for FITI, you know, all the credits, the research credit, the low-income housing credit, the alternative energy credits that the Biden administration likes. And yet, if you use those credits to get your rate under 15%, under Pillar 2, other countries are going to start trying to grab and tax that slice of income that's being taxed at a lower than 15% rate to get the overall rate up. And why should we be in a process that allows that to happen? Now, I think the honest answer for Secretary Yellen was that they were planning all this at a time when they thought our rate was going to be like 25 to 28%. And so it wouldn't be as big a problem. But... You know, without BBB, maybe even with BBB, we're we're going to have a 21 percent rate. So the spread between 15 and 21 is just not that large when you're talking about all these credits. It's a real difficult position. It's going to be interesting to see what the secretary says in response to all of this.
1: And Paul, just to unpack that for folks that, that are listening and maybe haven't been thinking about it, it's right, isn't it, that we could have guilty reform But if the U.S. rate itself is below 15, U.S. multinationals are still going to have a big problem.
2: Well, and you don't even have to be a multinational. You just have to have international deals. Just have international deals. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. fair enough. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. It's a separate problem. What would need to happen is the minimum tax, the global minimum tax that's in the BBB, would have to not allow all the, that's a 15% minimum tax, would have to not allow all the credits that it allows against it. And that would substantially undercut some of the incentives in BBB, ironically, because you would be judging your tax after the credit rather than your tax before the credit for purposes of that minimum tax.
4: Paul, to ask a question we've been asking about a lot of the rest of these topics, how does the treaty come to play here? Is it completely irrelevant? Is that another thing that just becomes problematic if you have a situation where U.S. tax rate goes below 15% and country A, who's a treaty partner, tries to get that bit of income?
2: You know, I haven't really thought much about that. I suspect there's an argument that the foreign country doesn't have the right to tax that income under the treaty, but it applies in such an arbitrary way That there may not be a transaction that would be relevant with that country to actually have the treaty come into play so i i don't know nate whether you've thought about that but i haven't really
1: i i think the great irony is that the much loved in the united states savings clause that reserves to countries the right to tax their residents as they want to helps a foreign country a lot here, because they just say, look, we're just denying deductions here locally. This doesn't have anything to do with you. There's no transaction. And by the way, U.S., this is the rule you wanted. So good luck. All right.
4: <laughs> so as we come close to uh, to time, any kind of final comments, uh, Jose, for Paul?
2: I'll volunteer. I've been thinking about this a lot lately. I mean, I think Pillar two is not going to be that hard to get um, established in the EU, you know, in the UK, probably in Japan, Australia, many of the major countries with multinationals. We won't have it, and that's going to cause us some problems, maybe until 2025, when we have to have major reform, because all kinds of things are going to come close to expiring in the next administration. And so we'll have a period of chaos that we just have to deal with, but perhaps manageable chaos, except for the U.S. credit issue and getting below a 15% rate that we've talked about. On Pillar 1, it's definitely going to be chaos for a while. And I think it's going to be a work in process. We're going to have a beta test, basically, at best of, of Pillar 1 over the next few years with a limited number of companies and a limited number of jurisdictions adopting it and we'll just have to see whether it ends up appealing enough to a broad enough group to be adopted in a more widespread manner or whether it ends up being a beta test that never never goes beyond that.
3: Yeah, I would add that it's a really interesting time now because you're we're following up with tax law in the same way that we're following up with like the 24-hour news cycle because everything is changing so rapidly. And so it's a very interesting time that there's so many different moving parts and there's so so much complication going on. Trying to make sense of it is going to be, I think, the task for for a lot of tax practitioners going forward.
1: Well, as regular listeners know, I can't take this anymore. I'm just going to go sit in the corner David's going to grieve the demise of the arms length standard, but want to thank both you guys for coming on. Really appreciate uh, the insight, the perspective, and thought it was a great conversation.
4: Indeed. Thank you guys so much. Hopefully you'll be back with us.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Guilty Conscience. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss any future conversations. Skadden's tax team is recognized globally for providing clients with creative and innovative solutions to their most pressing transactional, planning, and controversy challenges. Additional information about Skadden can be found at skadden.com.